Good morning. My name is Joy, and um, I'm going to talk to you this morning. Hopefully I have some things that the Lord has given me that will help you to say, that will help you. We're in a series um, that we're calling More, and a lot of the subject matter is taken from a book called Sacred Rhythms which you could say is about spiritual disciplines, but it's kind of not, it's kind of, but anyway, it's about our spiritual journey, our inward journey with God. And a couple weeks ago, Clara talked to us about desire. She talked about digging down into our deepest desires where we find something um, that's an ache and a longing. And if we listen to that ache and that longing, and we allow God to speak to us in that place, we can follow it as a trail toward God and toward his purposes for us in our life. There is also some um, popular authors that I've been reading lately on the subject of simplicity. Um, In my generation, there is a minimalist or minimalism movement happening with some people, not that that is reserved to my generation because it's happened for centuries. Generations become... the culture becomes excessive, and then people say, wait, wait, that's too much. Let's scale it back down. And then sometimes simplicity is chosen for a generation, such as the case of the Great Depression, and then there's just these ebbs and flows. So um, in some of the my peers, uh, I find that there's this movement toward simplification. And I think that regardless if you agree with that or not, you could say that there's days that feel like too much. There's times when your schedule feels too hectic and too crazy. We have jobs. We have school. We have kids who have school. We have homework. We have after-school activities. We have bills to pay. We have errands to run. And I don't need to hash all this out. You guys live this every day. And if you don't feel busy and rushed every day, I would guess there's at least one day that goes by every week where you feel a little of the chaos and hectic pace wearing you down. Uh, Technology, instead of easing our lives, has created a world where we are constantly on call, constantly multitasking, and expected to respond within minutes or hours to anyone who demands of us. Even when I was sitting at my computer trying to write this sermon, there was just not just my children popping up, but my phone, and I had to just turn my phone face down, so I stopped the little glare start popping up. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I took a part-time job at a business office, and I never really realized how much activity I conducted on my phone over the course of the day, how many conversations, how much business, um, as I also op- operate a couple of my own businesses, until I was at a job where I was expected to be on the clock for them, and I had to put that phone away for four hours. And when, by the time I got back to it, I thought it was just going to explode with, and people, you know, well, where are you? And, you know, it's been, are you going to respond? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I guess normally I respond a little too fast. <laughs> My family and I like to go camping at a state park every year, and it used to be a beautiful, simple time in nature, quiet, peaceful. The Internet on our phones was so slow that you just wouldn't even bother using it, Um, except for the one day or the one time each day we drove into town to buy ice for our ice cooler, and then we kind of check our messages and then go back into peace and quiet. And sadly, the last time we were at our favorite campground, we they had upgraded the Internet service. We had LTE signal. And I'm sure it won't be long before they have Wi-Fi. So much for unplugging. 
And part of us just keeps this up because it's what we're used to and it's, you know, it's just our day every day and it keeps moving. And also something in us probably wants that pace to slow down. You could probably picture an idyllic life or moment of your life. Maybe yours is a lake. Maybe it's a farm or a beach or the mountain top cabin. Some place where everything is quiet, nobody expects too much of you, someone else is paying the bills, and somebody else is changing the baby's diaper. We could smell the salt air of the beach or maybe the pine trees coming in through the cabin. And we sit on that shore or that patio with nothing to do. Peace, silence. So we find ourselves there. And that silence starts to get a little uncomfortable. Maybe we feel an odd ache or loneliness. So we pull out our phone and solve that loneliness problem. Psalm 10:16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. And you listen to their cry. In Second Chronicles, the Lord comes to Solomon and says, You're king over Israel. What do you want? And Solomon thinks for a long time and he says, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me knowledge that I may lead these people. This is a big job. And God says, I can see this is your heart's desire. Since you didn't ask for wealth or possessions or honor or for your enemies to die off. And since you didn't ask to live a long time. You asked for wisdom. That is your deepest desire. I will give it to you. And I'll also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king before you or no king after you. Sometimes we're just so full and so busy that we don't even realize how isolated that we have become. And when we're in a moment of solitude, that's just too painful to endure. But solitude is a spiritual discipline, and it interrupts this cycle when we purposely choose solitude, knowing that we will encounter those type of things in our heart. But then we can hear our loneliness. We can hear our isolation. We can hear whatever is going on inside of us that the Lord wants us attuned to because he wants to come in and talk to us about that place. Here's a few excerpts from some of the books that I have read recently on simplicity or minimalism. This one book is called The Joy of Less. Follow your bliss. If you can identify those things that truly speak to you, the things that when held in your mind, you feel the truth of them inside your gut. Those things that truly make you happy, the things that make the hair stand up on your arms. If you can identify those things and then take steps to move toward them, You will be well on your way to clarifying your life's purpose. Here are some questions, answers to help you reveal your bliss. What humbles you? What fills you with awe and amazement? What have you noticed or where have you noticed grace in your life? What words fill your heart with joy? In what environment are you most fulfilled? And there's some truths in here some truths of God that are present in this, and we'll talk about some of those. Another one is called, another book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. It may be one you've heard of. <clears throat> There's a little meme going around on Facebook that says, I did that Japanese organizing method where 
you uh, touch everything you own and decide what doesn't spark joy and you throw it out. And so I threw out the vegetables and the bills or something like that. <clears throat> and it's kind of a, a joke on her, her method. Um, <clears throat> but she says this, visualize the ideal lifestyle you dream of. What kind of house do you want to live in? And how do you want to live in it? Do you want a tidier home and why? Describe the kind of life you would live if you weren't always cleaning your home. If your home was a peaceful place and didn't need so much work, what sort of things would you do with that extra time? And then she says, once you've reached that point, you've followed her method and so you have a tidier home, here you are in a clean and tidy room. She says, what if then you can't feel relaxed in it? Try confronting your feeling of anxiety. It may shed light on what is really bothering you. When your room is clean and uncluttered, you have no choice but to examine your inner state. You will see issues you have been avoiding and will be forced to deal with them. You will be compelled to reset your life. Going to the book that we have been studying in this um, series called Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Barton. She is talking again about experience or longing and desire. She says that desire is bittersweet. She said, it's a little painful and a little sweet. It reminds me I am alive in ways that I want to be alive. And then she says this, within you, quite deep, often silent, is your longing for love. You're longing for God. You're longing to live your life as, as it is meant to be lived in God. And she asks this question, when was the last time you felt a longing for healing or for fundamental change groaning within you? Don't rush past this question when it erupts. It may be the most important question that you ever ask. Jesus asked people some really interesting questions. In fact, a lot of times when people came and challenged him he, or asked him a question, he responded with another question back at them. And this issue of desire and the desires that we have inside of us, I think uh, this author in Sacred Rhythms, she makes the point that sometimes I think we're afraid of our desires. We're afraid that if we investigate that, um, sadness or that loneliness or that, that depth or aching that we have, what will we find? And maybe it will lead us toward God or maybe it will show us that we're really not in a good spot. And Jesus purposely asked those type of questions of people that came to him in order to uncover that and to dig a little deeper and to help them to find um, a path that he was leading them on. And sometimes people came to him specifically for physical healing and again, he would ask them this question. And we'll go over a few of these stories, but it, it's just always surprising that they show up and they're like, Lord, I need to be healed. And, and he, so he asks them, what do you want? Well, I need to be healed. It should be obvious that my leg is missing, or it should be obvious that I can't stand up straight, or it should be obvious that, you know, I'm bleeding, or it should be obvious that I have seizures. Hello, I'm here for healing. And Jesus doesn't say obvious. He says, what do you want? What do you want from me? So here's a few examples. Bartimaeus. As Jesus, this is from um, the book of Mark, chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many around rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. 
What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Here's another one. This is the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Well, why would he be lying by the pool of Bethesda unless he wanted to get well? But Jesus asks him this question, do you want to get well? Interestingly enough, the man doesn't answer Jesus' question. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. What do you want me to do for you? Do you want to get well? These questions from Jesus dig deep. They are going down to the level where the spiritual journey of these folks are unfolding, not their physical healing, but a spiritual journey that's deeper within them. And they penetrate to that core. Your desire that I know each of you have because you're here today, your desire for more of God than you have right now, and your longing for love, and your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you experienced so far, that longing is the truest thing about you. You might think that your brokenness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you, or your giftedness, or your personality, or your job, or your identity in your family. But it is your desire for God, your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now, that is the deepest essence of who you are. God made you in his image. So with that, you were immediately created in his image. And we have a desire to be his image, to reflect him, just as he created us to be. And we desire to be a more full reflection of his image than we are. And that, his creation of us, our reflection of him, and our desire to be a greater reflection of him, that is the truest thing about our inmost being. So, we don't always see that happening, right? We're not always making that reflection. And we're aware of it. We're aware of that fallenness. And so that desire to get come back into that truest place that he created us, to get rid of excess, to get rid of our sin, to unwrap the layers, to expose the God-created core of who we really are and who he made us to be when he formed us in his sinless image. Let's look at one more, um, well, two more people in the Bible where Jesus asked these type of penetrating questions. This is Mark chapter 10, James and John. And again, we're looking at the element of desire. What do these people desire? and What of their desire and longing do we see shining through in these encounters with Jesus? James and John are two of Jesus' disciples. They're some of his closest friends. So you would think that their desires might be a little more in line with the kingdom that Jesus was building. But they're human, just like us. Uh, And this reflects an interesting desire that they had. Teacher, they said when they came to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you are in your glory. 
You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the other disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So each of these people that we've just talked about, they all had a desire for transformation. There was something that they wanted to see changed in their life, something so vital that they were already in a position to hope for it to be changed. And when the opportunity to interact with Jesus on this desire came up, they were ready. They were ready to express that need and that longing that they had. And we have these desires too. They are our purest things down inside of us, and sometimes we just cover them up. So we don't have to encounter them because they are emotionally powerful. Let's go back to Bartimaeus. What response did we see from him? He was shouting. He was persistent. And when he had the opportunity to get to Jesus, he threw off his cloak. He jumped to his feet and he went straight there. So he had a desire for change in his physical body. And he had abandoned his desire for acceptance or approval from the people around him because they kept telling him to be quiet and he ignored them. So that desire that we all have to kind of be okay with people around us, he had said enough with that desire. My desire for transformation is greater than that desire to be accepted by these people who are here telling me that I'm being too annoying. The man at the pool of Bethesda, when Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? He doesn't even answer. He blames everyone else around him. It's my circumstances, Lord. But beneath that complaining, we can see he had a desire for companionship. He had a desire for support. Maybe there were other people at that pool who had a family member with them to help them get in the water faster than anybody else. And he didn't have anyone there with him. There was no one there to help. And so that deep desire for companionship and someone to walk this journey of life with him was powerful. And that's what came out in his, you know, well, nobody's here to help me. In James and John, They, sadly, were desiring prominence and respect. And not that those are bad things in themselves. But when Jesus asks them that question, he's exposing a false ambition that they have. And that false ambition is detrimental to themselves and to the community because it disrupts the whole community of disciples, the other ten, when they find out that James and John don't want to be equal with them anymore. They want to be in charge. They want to be sitting in the place of prominence. And similarly, we all have desires within us that also work against the life that God is taking us toward. We have desires that are not Christ-image-like desires. James 1.15 says, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. James 4.2 says, You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
And Romans 8, 4 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So the good news about God is that since he made you and he loves you, we have a safe place in his presence. And we can open up our desire to him in safety. That will be a humbling experience because there will be parts of our desire that are true and parts that are false. But when we take it to God, he gives us a chance to sort it all out. One clue that you have identified a deep desire is a swell of emotion. When this happens, try not to be afraid of it. It is important to let, you, let yourself feel how deep your desire goes. And we're going to get into a little kind of a technical phrase or word here called consolation and desolation. If you have a Catholic or other liturgical background, you may have heard these words before. Um, The idea of consolation and desolation is um, ideas connected to our emotions. Consolation describes generally positive emotions like joy, love, peace, happiness, delight, wonder, excitement, and enthusiasm. And desolation describes generally negative emotions, anxiety, worry, disappointment, discouragement, depression, fear, anger, frustration, restlessness, loneliness. Hopefully we can all agree, not everyone within certain Christian faiths will agree on this, but I would like to help us see that Jesus experienced emotion. And so if Jesus experienced emotion, we can see it a bunch of times in his life, then emotion itself can't be bad. It can't be the devil. It can't be something we're not allowed to experience. So if Jesus experienced them, we experience them. They're part of our human experience, and they're part, therefore, of our Christian life. And if God wants to work in us, then God wants to be at work in our emotions. God desires to speak to us, to guide us through really powerful emotional experiences. So if God wants to work through our emotions and we want to see him at work and we want to use that as an opportunity for transformation and to see our desire and to take our desire to him, all these things we've been talking about, then we have to encounter our emotions sometimes, especially when they're powerful, and do something about them. Um, So I'm going to pause for just a minute and if you could all do a favor for me and think of Maybe 24 to 48 hours, but if you can't, if you need to go back further to like the last week, that's fine. Think of some opportunity that you had to experience an emotion that kind of maybe took you by surprise, kind of startled you because of the intensity of it. It could be good or it could be bad, but just that emotional surge kind of grabbed you in that moment. I'll give you a couple, a little time. In using consolation and the idea of consolation and desolation to help us take our emotions to God and allow him to work in that place, there's a few steps that this um, the Sacred Rhythms book suggests. The first one is just awareness. Think back about that time when you felt emotional. Were you aware at that moment that what you were experiencing was that intense surge of emotion? Maybe you just felt angry. I think probably remembering 
a negative time might be easier than a good time. We tend to dwell and fixate on those a little bit more. But what, if you're having a negative emotion, what is it? Can you name it? Can you just allow its existence? Um, you don't have to feed it. You don't have to hammer it down. But just say that it's there and let it be there because it's in your body at that time. And then we can think about what caused it. Where did this come from? Um, so I'll use an example to kind of help us walk this through. Um, I'll choose one desolation emotion and one consolation emotion. Um, the desolation that I will talk about is um, a few weeks ago, uh, my youngest son, who's 18 months old, he fell and hurt his ankle outside. And when we brought him into the house and we tried to set him down to walk, he immediately collapsed on the floor. We tried this several times and he was saying, ow, ow, ow. Um, it looked like something was wrong with one of his feet or legs and he would not walk or stand at all. Just would collapse the minute we would stand, um, try to get him to stand. And he walks fine under normal circumstances. Um, so we made the decision to take him to the emergency room because it was just so severe that he, he wouldn't even just like go ow and point to his foot like he would just immediately fall to the floor. And we have a high deductible insurance plan, which so I knew it was going to cost us something. And we eventually got the bill in the mail. And I'm part of a, a financial t management type of Facebook group. And so I asked in there once we got the bill, hey, here's the amount of the bill. Here was the situation. Our insurance paid this amount. Here's the amount we have left. Has anyone had success with negotiating these type of bills? Is there a certain way to do that? Do you have to call a certain office? Or what percentage might I expect them to take off, et cetera? And I posted in the group, and I got a whole bunch of really encouraging responses, people saying, yes, it worked for us, you know, ask them this, or, you know, here's some tips. And then I started getting some um, comments from people saying things like, well, the hospital provided a service to you. Why would you expect them to reduce their prices just because you ask? If you went to a restaurant and you ordered a meal, you would expect to pay for it. You wouldn't be sitting there haggling about what you were going to pay for it. And then someone else said something like, you know, something similar, just basically like it's your responsibility. You used you used their services. It's your responsibility to pay for it. And I could go into all the reasons why I disagree with that. But the point what the point we're getting to is that I was angry, right? We're talking about our emotions, and that my response, my emotional response to those comments was really powerful anger, anger that kind of took me by surprise. And I thought about it over the course of the day and the next day, and every time that it kind, of, I was able to forget about it, move on. But every time it came back up. Or then somebody else commented again, that anger just surged again. I eventually deleted the post so I could stop being having the reminder of the anger about it. <clears throat> but the Lord wanted, wants to work in that moment. So we'll use me as a little guinea pig. So what contributed and what caused that and where did all that anger come from? Um, and, you know, you could, it can come from surface things like, well, you know, we're trying to be responsible with our finances. And so this is a setback. And uh, it could come with anger with the system, well, the government and the healthcare system and the la, la, la. And so here we are with this big amount of money to pay for something really small. We were there for like 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and um, <clears throat> so we can kind of get wrapped up in that, I think, and get stuck there. And like, well, why is this anger and all these things and all these arguments? So we want to kind of move past that. And the second step that this author encourages us is um, to... <clears throat> I'm sorry, the third step, once we kind of working through, okay, I, I'm angry. I named it. I said the anger, it was anger. Um, and I kind of worked a little way, and I finally worked to a little bit of, um, it's an issue of justice, right? Um, 
I'm grateful that I have access to health care, but there I feel like an injustice has been done to me and that God is a just God. So he put in me a desire for justice and the injustice is the system. And the injustice is these people thinking they can just say something nasty to me about the fact that my kid was in the emergency room and that now I have this really monstrous bill to pay when this is a group about like financially helping people move forward in their life. <laughs> you know, <I> was like, <clears throat> and so I'm experiencing some injustice and my anger is responding to that injustice of, you know, if I had a different health care plan, then I wouldn't have this huge bill and the insurance wouldn't be allowed to send me something like this for something so small because the insurance would negotiate with the hospital and the hospital would just accept, you know, a quarter of what they think they can bill somebody for, but because I don't have that arrangement, they can just bill me for the whole thing. So I'm reacting to that with my perception of injustice. So then we want to get all the way past all of that, <laughs> all the way to what is God trying to do right now? And here's some good questions to ask. What is this emotion producing in my life? How am I responding to the emotion? What am I doing with this emotion or because of this emotion? Or what is emerging in my life as a result of this emotion? So here's where they have, we have the opportunity. These are all like second steps. They're second steps after the emotion. And rationalizing away the emotion isn't this type of step we're talking about. We're talking about what is the invitation of God in this moment? And if, even if God wasn't here, how are we reacting to this anger? How are we going to process this anger? What am I going to do with this anger? What could emerge in my life because of this anger and this situation? And we're at a crossroads, and we have a choice to choose the path of distancing ourselves from God or drawing in to God. And we have that at every emotional point, good or bad, distancing ourselves from God or drawing into God. I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, so I'll just keep on because I have maybe it'll make more sense as I continue through my notes. <clears throat> The author talks, so this idea of consolation and desolation, and the author talks about how either of these can be good or bad. We generally, we generally always perceive bad emotions as being bad and good emotions as being good. But she talks about how our good emotions can potentially get us astray and our bad emotions could actually lead us somewhere good. So that's, that's this point where we're at now. What are we doing because of these emotions? And are we going to go a good path or a bad path with the good happy feelings? Are we going to go a good path or a bad path with the difficult feelings? <clears throat> because God can be at work in either of those places. Let's go back to this bad emotion. If I were to sit here and try to process this, okay, how could I respond to this emotion of anger? Well, I can keep being angry. That's taking me further away from God. I could stop being angry. Well, how am I just going to stop being angry? And you invite God into that place, and I say, God, I'm angry. I feel like this is an unjust situation. What am I going to do about this emotion? And if I have a moment, I try to let him talk to me. And maybe he just says, Joy, I love you, and I provide for you. Okay, his provision is there for me. It's enough. And the resources that I need to take care of that bill, whether I decide to pay it in full because, you know, I went to the restaurant and I ate at it, or if I decide to negotiate it, his provision is there for me. And he cares for me. And if the whole point is that I'm just angry about all this money that I have to pay, 
That's something that God is big enough to interact with. So I can turn to him and say, okay, I trust you to provide for me. And if the core of this is provision and my need for security, then it's you. And you are a just God. And you know how to work out justice. And you know what? There's a lot of people dying who have no access to health care at all. And yet you're just in those situations too. I think sometimes we don't want to take the effort to work on those emotional experiences that we have. We just want to get them over with and move on. But the trouble is we don't always move on very easily. And so those emotions and those, especially those desolate experiences begin to occupy our time and our energy and our thought. So if it's worth the time, and if we're going to go through the time and energy of rehashing those experiences and rehashing those desolate emotions, then let's stop and take some time to allow the Lord to speak to us in that moment and see where is he at work and what is this emotion producing in my life? Because maybe I can't do anything about this situation that already happened, but I can do something about what God wants to produce in my heart at this moment after this reaction that I've had. Each time we encounter this, this is an opportunity for us to find God or an opportunity to miss God. The author talks a little bit about what she calls false consolation, or we could say bad consolation. So consolation is the good emotions, um, but when could those good emotions actually be deceiving us or taking us to a place that's further away from God instead of closer to God? And this would happen when we are enjoying something sinful. Sometimes what we desire or we experience as pleasurable is wrong. And when we do that, this is false consolation. Deuteronomy 5.21 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we see here in Scripture that we can have a desire that could be good. A desire for a donkey isn't necessarily bad, but because our desire is for the donkey of our neighbor, the, the scripture is telling us don't set your desire on that. Um, here's an illustration from, uh, from my life. Something that brings me feelings of consolation, joy, happiness, peace, excitement. Um, something that can bring those emotions to me is shopping. I like shopping, and the certain types of things that I shop for have changed over the course of my life based on what's happening in my life. It could be, uh, anyway, could be clothes, could be jewelry, could be um, wraps to carry babies in, it could be uh, any number of things. But I have used in my life shopping as consolation. The world calls this retail therapy. <laughs> and this type of consolation is not leading me toward God. It might make me feel good, but it isn't drawing me closer into a relationship with God. And sometimes it could actually drawing me, could be drawing me towards sin of excess spending or hiding purchases. And we go keep going down that road further and keep following that. Well, I'm, I'm experiencing consolation. These emotions are drawing me toward a good place. Well, they're not drawing me toward a place that's in line with God's truth. So they might be happy, but they aren't God's truth. <clears throat> we want to take that experience too and say, okay, I might be feeling good, but where, let me go back to these questions over here. What is this emotion producing in my life? Is it producing things in line with God and drawing me toward him or drawing me away? Well, it's producing overspending. We don't quite have enough money for other things that we need. 
or it's producing a compulsion to do more shopping, which is a disconnection from things and people in my life that are more important. Or maybe it isn't because shopping is bad, it's just because it's covering up those feelings of isolation or loneliness or desolation that I have. And I need to go back to those desolate feelings that are trying to make me do something to make them happy and say, well, Lord, let me bring you this desolation and stop just covering it up with something that make, temporarily makes me feel happy. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. <laughs> okay. When we're taking a moment to look in our heart and say, why am I experiencing this consolation? Where is God at work in this consolation? Or why am I experiencing this desolation? And where is God at work in this desolation? Um, This type of practice is an example of what we call self-examination or self-awareness. And a lot of our culture, um, our culture actually kind of glorifies self And in some Christian circles, we consider this to be bad, this journey of appreciating yourself or understanding yourself, um, because all we want to do is understand God. And this author, and, and several others, but this author in particular, talks about how when we do this, we're actually inviting God to know us and inviting God to help us know ourselves so we can experience transformation. So it's okay that we're taking a little time to uncover what's going on inside of us and be more self-aware because God wants to transform us. He wants to be at work in that place. Um, So it's not selfishness. It wouldn't be the same thing. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, God already knows us completely. There isn't anything he doesn't know about you, and he still likes you, so that's good news. So in this invitation that David is writing, God, search me, God, know me, test my thoughts, lead me in the way everlasting. He's inviting God in, but he's also inviting God to expose himself to God and to himself for the purpose of transformation. Of course, Christ can transform us, even if we don't realize. We sometimes look back five years back and go, wow, a lot of things have changed, and I'm so glad for that process of transformation that's happened in the last five years. But if we are aware and we can be a little more actively participating in the transformation, um, there's a richness to it, an expansion that comes inside of us. So coming a little bit back to desire, um, what do you desire more of? And it's okay if you think maybe it's bad because bad, because that desire still can lead you to transformation because we can ask, okay, Lord, why do I desire this, whatever this is? Why do I desire to have children? I don't have any yet. Why is that desire so powerful inside of me? And if you're experiencing that desire as desolation, 
that's okay to be in that place and stay in that place and say, Lord, how are you transforming my soul in this place of desolation? It doesn't mean you have to leave the desolation. It doesn't mean those emotions are bad. It means the Lord is at work. And what is he drawing you toward in that place? So what do we desire? More peace or more stillness, more rest, more joy, maybe more people around us, more laughter. And to gain those things, what do we need to release from our lives? And we can always think of something we'd rather not be doing, like cleaning the toilet or studying for an exam. We'd rather not eat vegetables and we'd rather not pay the bills. But When we think about each of those things I just listed, we desire more of something in our life. For example, a clean house, so we clean the toilet. We desire a meaningful job, so we're studying for an exam to further our education. We desire a body that has energy and can fulfill um, going about our business over the course of the day. And so we might eat some vegetables. We desire orderly finances, so we pay the bills. Or we refrain from spending on things that are excessive for um, our financial situation. When we suppress those desires and suppress the deep emotion that's connected to those desires, sometimes we're trying to keep those things outside of our awareness. But to be transformed, we need to allow God to erupt those, to bring them into our awareness, to make ourself see them. And then he can begin that transformation process of our desires. Does anybody know what time I'm actually supposed to stop talking? I don't, I don't know anymore what the schedule is. <laughs> when I'm finished, well... Okay, I'll, I'll do this last section, but I might abbreviate it slightly. I'm going to talk a little bit. Um, this is, it's going to come back and be connected, but it will seem a little disconnected for a while, so just hang with me. Uh, one of the books I referred to earlier is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, and she has a second book called Spark Joy. She is a, Marie Kondo is a Japanese organizing expert. Her method of organizing she calls Marie, and in her book she also calls it tidying. And she separates the idea of this tidying from your regular everyday cleaning. So tidying is organizing your house in a certain manner that she describes compared to cleaning, which is dealing with dust, dealing with, uh, you know, your children that pee on the floor because they don't know how to aim and those type of things. So cleaning is not tidying, and tidying is her method of, of organizing your home. So just... Don't think about the everyday cleaning things that will always happen when we're discussing um, her idea. <clears throat> so the central key to her method is to touch each object in your home. And I brought a few. I actually meant to bring more props, but I forgot. And so I dug a few things out of my purse, and I think they'll work fine. Because we always carry things in our purse that aren't needed or sometimes not needed. But anyway. Okay. These are not really, well, they'll work. All right, so the key to her method is to touch each object in your home one at a time and listen to your intuition about whether or not the item, the item sparks joy for you. If you don't connect with that phrase, sparking joy, here's some other ways that she describes it. 
Um, it's a sensation and it's a feeling. She also describes it as a lifting up sensation as compared to a downward or sinking sensation. She describes it as a feeling of fascination, excitement, or attraction, or a simple design that puts you at ease, or a high degree of functionality that makes life simpler, a sense of rightness, or the recognition that a possession is useful in our daily lives. All of these indicate joy. And as I was putting this together, it really seemed to me to connect with that experience of consolation and desolation. So she's, her spark joy is an experience of consolation. And um, it's a bodily experience. We can feel that flow of energy coming into us or draining away from us. And if we attune to that, which is what she's encouraging us to do in her method, then that's how we're going to go about organizing our house. She writes in her book that her method is not just organizing your house, that it is a method for self-change and life change. Um, Benjamin and I are almost completed. We started last summer, and she wants you to do it a little quicker than we've done it, but that was how we had done it. Um, And I will say that it has been a huge journey for me of awareness of things inside of my heart, things in my experience that I've been able to take to God, and I have experienced significant life transformation um, by following. So I think, I think the Lord has given her this beautiful little glimpse of something in his kingdom, and she just doesn't know that it's him. Hopefully one day she'll find him. She says that as you put your house in order, you decrease your possessions, you'll see what your true values are, what is really important to you in life. Um, But her focus is not on reducing, although people do reduce in her method. That's not, her goal is not reducing. The goal is to keep things and to choose things to keep around you that are inspiring joy and helping uh, helping you enjoy your life. And she says this, I can think of no greater happiness in life than to be surrounded only by the things I love. All you need to do is get rid of anything that doesn't touch your heart. So in her method, you're, as I said before, you'll go through the objects in your home in an organized fashion, but she has you go by category rather than by room. You begin with clothing, and in the clothing category, you gather all of your clothing, accessories, shoes, underwear of all seasons, heavy coats in the attic, boots. You gather all that swimsuits, gather all of that stuff into one location. Um, she says if you have a lot of clothing, you can break it down into smaller pieces. You could do like all of your shirts at one time, all of your pants at one time, all of your undie things at one time, all of your accessories at one time. But she wants you to do that particular category all at once. Um, and depending on how many clothes you have, this might take you a couple hours or it might take a weekend. <clears throat> For me, it took <gasps> several weekends. <clears throat> so then you take each of those items in your hand one at a time, and you ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if it does, you keep it. If you feel that lifting up sensation, that feeling of peace, that feeling of rightness, you keep it. And that's what you're looking for is that that little spark, and you keep it. Anything else that doesn't give you that little spark has to go. I have some friends that have now done this method, and one of them said to me, "Um, so what if none of your clothes spark joy? And I actually had that encounter at the beginning of her method, despite the fact that my clothes were in my closet, in my husband's closet, in my children's closet, in the attic, and in the garage, and in my parents' loft. That's how many clothes that I had. I had something like 10 or 12 boxes of off-season clothing 
that wasn't even the normal season that was in my closet. And I still was having this trouble of finding anything that gave me that spark joy. So I actually started with anything that gave me the down sensation, anything that felt negative. And I was like, yeah, I, I can feel that Ugh, when I pick this one up, it's gone. And once I had purged all of those out, there was a, little more, a few more of these type of passes, so to speak, through my closet <clears throat> of identifying. And she says some of her clients will have this experience. They realize that all the clothes that don't spark joy for them are their fancy office clothes. And they realize that actually it's their job that doesn't spark joy for them. And there's something they've always wanted to do that it's time for them to pursue. And this is an inward journey of transformation that I believe God, regardless of whether they know it's God or not, is doing inside of their heart. She says the trick is to handle each item, not just look at it on a hanger or look at it on a shelf. You have to take it all down, get it all in one place. And she said people will be amazed. People will say, oh, I don't have that many clothes. Will be amazed at how high the pile is on their bed when they finally get it from all the different places where it's kept in one big pile. She says if you're really having trouble, another thing you can do is pick top three items from the pile that give you joy. So you have this big pile and you just say, okay, I know that one gives me joy. That's one of my favorites. I reach for that almost every time that it's clean. I know that black pair of pants gives me joy. They always fit. They have just the right amount of stretch. And any time that I'm just not sure what to wear, I can pick those out and they're good. And then you pick out one other whatever that it is. And that will help you begin to identify that little sensation in your heart that you're looking for to decide whether or not to keep things in your home. She says when she works personally with clients, their response is really clearly different to her as an observer of things that they like and things that they're not sure about. She said when faced with something that brings them joy, their decision is usually instantaneous. Their touch is gentle and their eyes shine. When faced with something that doesn't bring them joy, their hands pause, they cock their heads and frown. After thinking for a few moments, they throw the item on the keep pile. At that moment, there is a tightness in their brow and around their lips. She says, joy manifests itself in the body. Don't let those physical signs escape you. Keep only those things that speak to your heart. Take the plunge and discard all the rest. And by discard, she means just get rid of it somehow. So donate it to our churchyard sale. Take it to Goodwill. If it's actually trash, throw it out. She says that focusing solely on throwing things away or eliminating possessions that you have will only bring unhappiness because we should be choosing what we want to keep, not choosing what we want to get rid of. So once you finish your clothing, she has you go through the rest of your home, still by category. The next category is books, all books, fiction, nonfiction, cookbooks. It does not include sentimental books such as yearbooks or scrapbooks. The next category is papers, bills, warranties, manuals, files, anything except sentimental papers such as love letters. The next and largest category is kimono, which is a Japanese word for miscellaneous. And the kimono category has a bunch of subcategories like makeup, valuables, electronics, office supplies, cleaning, household goods, kitchen, hobby items. And then the very last category is sentimental items, which would include things like journals, letters, and photographs. And she has you do them in this particular order because she's been doing this with many people for many years, and she has found this to be the good order of how attached that we are to our possessions. So even someone like me who was pretty attached to my clothing took me several times to get through it. <clears throat> um, it still was the right place for me to start. And you don't want to do your photographs at the beginning because, oh, that's just so much emotional work. She says by the time you've gotten to that last category, 
you'll be much more in tune with what in your, is in your heart um, and what is bringing you joy or not. And for me, this simple concept and following it within my, within my home has been transforming and has been a spiritual journey of connection with God. I actually um, shop much less after having done this since we talked about shopping earlier. I have found contentment with my clothing that I own, with my body, and I've become more selective in my shopping, being careful to acquire only things which meet a need and bring joy into my life. Another thing that I learned about myself is that I create rules in my head. For example, as I was going through my clothing, I, in trying to get in touch with those emotions, I realized that every time I held something orange that I had that sinking feeling. So, I just, so then I made a rule that said, no orange. And I stopped applying her method of each individual item that was orange and just made a rule, no more orange. So I got rid of anything that was orange or had orange in it, which wasn't very many things since I didn't like orange but I was just realizing that about myself. And then we had a big old garage sale, and we sold, oh, my gosh, so much stuff. <laughs> and we donated things that didn't sell. And winter came around because I had done my clothing in the summer. And I had this pink shirt that I had kept, even though I don't like pink, but I somehow let myself keep a couple pink things because they still spark joy, which was great because that was what she wanted me to do. And unfortunately, I had this really warm, fuzzy pair of socks that had orange and pink stripes on them. And they matched this particular pink shirt that I was wearing this one day in the winter and realizing that I didn't have the matching fuzzy socks because they had orange in them. And when I sold those particular pair of socks at my yard sale and the person held them up and they asked me how much and I said 50 cents and then they said 25 and then they walked away with them, I had this little twinge, that little sad feeling like 25 cents and I liked those socks. But no orange. So how this applies to my spiritual journey is I realize in this journey of going through my things and learning these type of things about myself that I have these other type of internal rules for other parts of my life. So one example is with my children. I have this internal rule for when I've hit my limit. I've hit my limit for whining. I've hit my limit with how many foods that I have offered to you that you have refused. I've hit my limit today with dealing with with you and your behavior. I'm at my limit. I'm over my limit. I'm done. And then after that point at which I reach my limit and I tell myself that I've reached my limit, I allow myself to behave in ways that are sinful in how I react to my children. And I let myself yell. I let myself get frustrated. I let myself isolate myself from them and not interact with them in a way that is loving and kind. And so as silly as this sounds, in realizing these internal rules that I made myself for myself in my little organizing journey, I realized I had this also internal rule in my interactions with my children. And that, was, that rule was my excuse to let myself behave in a way that God did not want me to and to no longer have the patience and to keep trying and to keep asking him for help in that place of, in that place of desolation. So this is just one example of why I think that her method can be um, transformational. <clears throat> she says, as we hone our sense of what brings us joy through the process of tidying, we come to know ourselves far better. This is the ultimate purpose of tidying up. The greatest change that occurs through tidying is that you will learn to like yourself. For some of you, me saying that, that you would learn to like yourself might feel, make you feel uncomfortable. What do you mean I need to learn to like myself? And I would say, you are God's creation. 
Your body is the place where God dwells. You don't like it? You don't like God's temple? Most people don't. That can't be what God wants for us. All right, I'm going to come to these things since I've been walking around holding them. These don't, are really not quite right for her method because they're in different categories. This is a diaper, so this would go with diapers because I have more diapers of different kinds. And then this would go with things like accessories or purses. But um, as I forgot to bring them, so we'll just have to make do. We'll just have to pretend that I have this and I have some other um, purse in my hand. And I have taken this one in my hands. And this is this one is actually a particularly good example because... Um, it was a gift, and it's a pretty pattern. It has orange on it. I had a no orange rule, and it's also polyester. I have a no polyester rule. Um, but it sparked joy for me when I held it, despite having broken several of my rules, and despite the fact that I've owned it for a couple years and never used it. And so I listened to Marie Kondo, and I said, well, I feel that lifting up sensation. I feel that it sparks joy, despite it having some features that are not ideal for me, and so I'm going to keep it. So I put it in with the little purses and bags that I was keeping. And it wasn't long before one of my kiddos has started doing some chores around the house and earning money. And he needed a place to put his money so that when we went out somewhere and he wanted to buy something, his money was with us. And I said, you know what? I have this little coin pouch that fits coins. And orange is Jax's favorite color, and he doesn't mind polyester. And it has a zipper, and it's not going to spill the coins in my purse, and it will keep his money separate from my money. So this is empty because he recently spent it. But it normally keeps coins in it in my purse. So when we're out somewhere and Jax needs something that he wants to buy with his money, I have his money. And had I not followed my joy spark, I wouldn't have had this item. And I've gotten rid of lots of other things. And there's been times when I realize, oh, I need a... Mm, and I got rid of it. And each time, surprisingly, I have found something else in my home to serve whatever purpose it was that I needed. So wouldn't be afraid of that. All right. Let's pretend that I have another diaper here. Most of our diapers that we use are cloth. And so I went through um, all the diapers at one time. And so if I was holding this disposable diaper and a regular old cloth diaper in my hand, that would be a better representation of going through this category all at once. And I did go through all those diapers at once. It took me maybe 15 minutes. And in that journey, I learned more things about myself. I like the cloth diapers not only because they save me money, but because they're soft and they're cute. And when I fold them and I feel the fabric in my hands, it feels smooth under my hands. And I like the motion of folding the diapers and putting them in the drawer. I like taking care of our environment. And it's much cheaper and uses less water to wash these diapers than it does to make this diaper and dispose of this diaper in our landfill. And I don't like the scratchy feeling of this on my hands. I don't like the crunchy sound that it makes. I don't like this kind of scratchy sound the elastic makes when you open it and close it over the baby. And in the past, I would have ignored these things about myself and just kept using disposable diapers and not realized I was being irritated every time that I changed a diaper by this thing that I don't like for a whole bunch of reasons. And attuning to that myself, now my husband likes disposables, so we keep some in the house for him. <laughs> um, and for a few other purposes. But anyway, the point was, I was able to say, our decision to cloth diaper was a wise decision for some wisdom reasons that I can think, and they actually do spark joy for me. And so now when I'm changing a poopy diaper, 
and that poop smells gross and it's all slimy and gross, I can pause for a moment and say, Lord, thank you for the joyfulness of having this cloth diaper. I like it so much better than a disposable. And thank you for the opportunity to clean my children and allow their bodies to be safe and to have soft fabric against their skin. And every time I fold those diapers, because I do so much laundry in my house, I can say, Lord, thank you that I chose these because this sparks much more joy for me to have these soft, beautiful things than to have this crunchy, scratchy thing. I don't know if I'm helping you any or not. This probably wasn't you were expecting today, but I'm going to wrap up. All right, so trying to get this, tie this all together. In this journey that Benjamin and I have gone through of going through our things and tidying up the things in our home, oh, one more thing. If you decide to do it, read her book because I'm just barely touching it and you're supposed to only deal with your own stuff. Each family member is supposed to deal with their own stuff. Okay. Um, I experienced in this journey great consolation and great desolation. A lot of objects that I touched um, sparked memory or really strong emotion that I didn't realize was buried down there. And I had to encounter that consolation or that desolation tied to these certain objects. And it keeps drawing me back to that question of what do I desire? And in her In Marie Kondo's method, we encounter our past desires because those past desires mean we own something now because of that past desire if we purchased it. Or if someone gave it to us and we didn't like it, we desired not to upset them and so we kept it. But we keep encountering those old desires that led us to having all of these objects that we own. And... We revisit our former self. We encounter whether the changes we've made since acquiring these things have brought us better or worse. We're going to remember people. Some of those memories will bring us great joy or great grief or great anger. And again, here we encounter God. We encounter him in our body. We encounter our desire. We encounter these powerful emotions. And we have a choice. Are we going to draw into God's presence? Are we going to draw away from his presence? What is this memory or emotion produced in my life up to this point? That's an interesting question. What have I done with this emotion that I'm experiencing back then? And what am I going to do with it now? How can I respond to this emotion? What is God asking me to do with it? What could emerge from my life now that I've encountered this experience and this emotion and this object? And as we hold that object, it represents its past with us and the emotion that's tied to that. And there Jesus sits right next to us keeping us company as we go through our things, as we go through our heart. He's with us in the old moment when we acquired that thing. He is with us again today. He's our companion, inviting us to be with him, not to shove that emotion down, not to rush through it, to be with it, to be with him, to take that moment of desolation or that moment of consolation and allow it to be a moment of connection with him. All right, I'm way out of time. So I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you are our companion. And Holy Spirit, thank you for being our companion, for being that voice that speaks within us and says, yes, this is you. I feel you lifting me up. Or that says, no, but can be released from my life. And Holy Spirit, you are calling us. You, you made us in your image. You place those deep longings and desires within us. And then you call us into them deeper. You call us into you deeper. You call us to cast off too much stuff that's around us. You call us to unwrap the layers of our heart, to let you into those deep places and say, 
Lord, what do you have of me? Where are you taking me because of this beautiful moment? Where are you taking me because of this desperate moment? Lord, as we go through our week, would you speak to us? Would you allow us to notice our emotion, to notice these places that we're in, and to just ask you, Lord, where are you taking me with this anger? Where are you taking me with this moment of enjoying the beauty of this flower or the beauty of this sweet face of a friend or a child in front of me? What are you inviting me to, Lord? Would you come in and unlock our desire and allow us to see it and allow us to be transformed toward where you're calling us? We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are a safe place. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we always take a little time at the end of the service to invite you, if you have any um, response that you need prayer for from the message today or the worship today, or if you have anything particular on your heart you need prayer for, just come on up. I'll be here. Some other folks will be here to pray with you. And um, have a good week. Let his beautiful moments soak in.